0: Thank you, James, for praying for us. I want you all to know that our elders take seriously the role of prayer and the prayer that they pray before us. I almost feel like we could, we could go right there. That was a, just a beautiful prayer. Well, we're going to be just starting right off with the reading this morning. Our reading is from Matthew one eighteen to 25. It's in your bulletin, or you can open up your Bibles with me. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider and meditate this morning on the birth of your son, we know that we. However, deeply we look into it, however, deeply we try to understand, I've only glanced to the surface of how incredible and how amazing, how joyous this birth was. Help us to more fully rejoice in it. Help us to live in a way that makes sense in light of it, Lord. We pray that you would give us eyes to hear, or ears to hear this morning, and eyes to see beautiful things in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Twice in the beginning of this first chapter of Matthew, both at the very beginning of the genealogy and then at the beginning of this account of Christ's birth, we come across a very distinctive Greek word. In Greek, it would be pronounced genesis, or as we're used to hearing it in English, Genesis. This is the title of the first book, as we know, of the Old Testament, not in the original Hebrew version, but in the Greek version that Matthew likely would have been using. And in one sense, the gospel writers are telling the next chapter, right, in a story that has been going on since the creation of the world. This is not a new book. This is a book designed to come after the book of Malachi, which follows in a long line. And yet, in a very real sense, in a very powerful sense, this is a new creation, a new genesis, This is something entirely new, that the Holy Spirit is again hovering over those primeval waters. He's preparing, and yet, in this case, not over the waters, but over the womb of a young virgin. A new reality has come into being a new genesis, and it centers around the baby in this manger. As we look at the birth of this child, we find a story that's filled with high drama, not only on the eternal level, which we might expect, right? not only as the coming to pass of all the prophecies, all the expectations, all of the promises that have been given to Israel, but even on a very personal level, a story of a man and his betrothed, his fiancée, we would say, and of an unforeseen pregnancy. Most of us are probably more accustomed to the angle on this story that Luke takes, where the angel speaks to Mary, Um, It very much focuses on Mary's point of view in this story, but no less important is the way that Joseph encounters this story of the birth of Christ. We read in verses 18 and 19, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We can all feel, to some degree, the pain that Joseph was feeling in that moment. When he discovered that his wife was pregnant and they had never been together, he drew the obvious conclusion, as each of us would, And when he came to this conclusion, um, what he was realizing was the woman who was supposed to become his wife, the woman who he had covenanted himself to love, in those days betrothal was less a kind of a loose obligation, but more of a definite commitment to a person who you just haven't yet had the time to officially marry. So they were in a very real sense committed to each other, they were in a very real sense Committed to be lifelong partners. And he found out that this woman, this love of his, had been unfaithful, had turned away from him to another man, not just after being discontented with a marriage, but even beforehand, even before they had had a chance to live together and to try to show each other love, even then he believed she had been unfaithful to him. What a grief he must have had. What a pain. I hesitate to ask, but how would we respond in that situation? If you put yourself in his shoes, what would you be feeling? The anger, the confusion, likely the hatred even, the bitterness. In such a situation, what do you do? How do you act? Of course, we know that Joseph's assumptions of what had happened, even though they were very reasonable, even though we would likely come to those same, situ- those same conclusions, we know that they were unfounded. But his pain in the midst of it was very real. And so the scene is set with Joseph co- contemplating the divorce of a woman who he had hoped to love for the rest of his life. With Joseph wrestling through this grief and anger and probably even bitterness that was springing up in his heart. I want us to remember this morning that the way that stories in scripture are told Matters. It's not just window dressing to the truth. We're not just minding it to find some nuggets of theological truth that we can then leave the story behind. No, the way that Matthew tells us this story is important. He could have just jumped to the conclusion, Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, move on. But no, he gives us this background. He gives us this story in which to understand it. And so the first thing that we learn about Joseph's character as he is considering these things is that he is a just man unwilling to put his wife to shame. That's not one statement, by the way. That's really two statements that join together. Number one, he is a just man. And number two, he is unwilling to put Mary to shame. The Jewish idea of justice, the Old Testament idea of justice, um, doesn't necessarily require this degree of mercy. The idea of justice is of keeping the law, is of living in light of what God had revealed in the law of Moses. There was a punishment for a crime, and it was not at all unjust to seek the punishment of the crime that had been done to you. If you think about if someone breaks into your house, even today, and you want them appropriately punished for doing so, put in prison or whatever it is, you would not be unjust for seeking that. And yet Joseph is just in a different way, in maybe a deeper way. His justice is not separated from his mercy, but somehow the two of them almost become one sentence. He is a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. He can be a just man, a man who lives a life in keeping with God's word, and yet be a man of mercy, unwilling to put to shame even a woman who had betrayed him so completely. Joseph knew in that day and age how a woman like that would be viewed, how hard her life would become. And he was unwilling, even though he had the right, to put her through that. I want you to think back with me now to the book of Hosea. Maybe you're familiar with it. maybe you aren't. Hosea was a prophet who received one of the hardest commands from the Lord. I think if I had become a prophet, there were a few others I would definitely have chosen before being... Hosea. What Hosea is commanded is to take an adulterous wife, and that's to put it in mild terms, and that even though she would inevitably be unfaithful to him, he was supposed to take her and love her. And as they came together and bore children, they were to give them names that illustrated not their love for these children, but God's wrath on unfaithfulness. The first child was born and was named Jezreel for the reason that God would soon put an end to Israel in the valley, which was called Jezreel. The second child was named Loruhama, which translates to no mercy, because the Lord would no longer have mercy on his people. And finally, Gomer bore a son, and they named Sorry, and they named him Not My People. Because Israel was no longer to be his people. He was coming to the end of this period of mercy and and threatening this ultimate cutting away of his love for them. So this is not what you want to hear when you become a prophet. Just like Jonah when he was told, you're going to go proclaim God's love and his mercy to a people who have hated you and destroyed your people and killed your people. So Hosea did not want to hear this message. And yet one of the things that we see is that the New Testament picks up on this as it frequently does of Old Testament ideas, and it transforms it. It makes it clear that this was not the end of the story, this was not the ultimate fulfillment, but it was pointing forward to something much, much greater. After the children are named, in fact, in Hosea, He relents and he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And so, just as in that story, there was a sense of reversal in Israel's fortune. So now, in the angel's proclamation to Joseph, we are seeing the ultimate reversal. We are seeing the ultimate new creation good out of evil. And as the angel proclaims it to Joseph, we are hearing the joy of this great new creation, new genesis, as Matthew has put it. And so we look at verses 20 to to 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I loved it at the beginning of really the most important proclamation that had ever been made. The most crucial announcement in this world, God has the angel tell Joseph, do not fear to, have, to take Mary as your wife. This very earthly, personal thing to him. The Lord comes to him, and even in the midst of this great announcement of great joy, he addresses his personal pain. He addresses it in a way that takes it up into this greater story. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, we can lose track of the uniqueness of this event. Many of us have been in Christmas Eve services our entire life. We have heard this story recounted over and over. My mother, I thank for uh, stepping up and joining our choir this morning. My mother and father are here this morning. um, And every Christmas, we would usually have music for five or six different services, and we would sing this message over and over and over until it just becomes in a good way, fundamental to who we are, in a way that just sinks down into our soul and becomes normal. And yet when Joseph heard this message, it was not normal, it was not expected, it was not something that was at all in line with what the Spirit was supposed to do. Mary wasn't even the sort of person who the Holy Spirit would work in. The Holy Spirit worked in kings, he worked in prophets, he worked in the great men of Israel, He didn't work in a young virgin girl from an unimportant, poorly thought of uh, town in Galilee named Nazareth. And you know what Jesus, even his followers said about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that place? And so why is the Holy Spirit coming here? And Joseph would have been shocked beyond words, not only that his wife had not been unfaithful as he had thought, but... What is this great announcement? The Holy Spirit is doing what in this, t- in this new time? And yet the angel's message continues to become even more amazing. Not only is your betrothed pregnant from the Holy Spirit, but the child she will bear will fulfill a prophecy that was made more than 600 years ago. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. With every new revelation, the angel's message becomes more and more amazing. The child will be born of the Holy Spirit according to prophecy, and he will be not just a great man, but as we see, he will be Emmanuel, God with us. That's not just a name. right? You can name someone Emmanuel, but in the Jewish times, in the Jewish culture, names had very clear meanings. Frequently, when you look at the names in a passage, you get a kind of a roadmap of what that passage is going to do, and when we hear Emmanuel, God with us, what greater name, what greater promise could be made to Israel, to the people who had been unfaithful so frequently in their history, who had turned away from the Lord, yet in a new and even a greater way, he would be with them in this person. There can be some confusion around the way Isaiah is quoted here. If you look back, At Isaiah 7, verse 14, which is what's quoted, if we read only the New Testament, we may be surprised to find that many of the prophecies and statements that are applied to Christ have original situations, original fulfillments even, that do not so clearly look forward. I think even in those first days in which these things were revealed to the apostles and to those who were to write scripture, they would have had to wrestle through when Jesus revealed to them what Scripture had really been pointing forward to. So, when we look at Isaiah 7, what we're really seeing is we're seeing what's called a dual fulfillment, as often happens. There was a situation in which King Ahaz was confronted with his unfaithfulness, and in response to that, he was given kind of a chance to be faithful, and he did not. And this prophecy is made actually not of great peace, but of coming judgment. He's coming as a sign of destruction, this child born in a manger. It would be a sign of the day in which God would bring the nearby nations to conquer, to lay waste to the land. There are positive aspects to the prophecy, It's not only negative things, there are certainly positive aspects, but it's certainly not the great announcement of great joy that we are used to hearing it as. And yet when we hear it in light of Christ, we hear the great reversal, the new creation in it. We realize that the initial fulfillment of it, and it's not entirely clear here what that was supposed to be, whether it was Ahaz's son Hezekiah, as is frequently thought of, you can interpret it as Hezekiah was a true son born of a woman of Israel, a woman who was basically unable, virgin, unable to bring forth a good king. That's one uh, interpretation that you'll see, but there are a number that you can look at. But when we see it in Christ, it is entirely different, it is reversing that judgment given to Israel and Instead saying, what had been judgment will now be reversed to great joy. What had been destruction will be turned to great peace, to great blessing. It's interesting how Matthew includes both the original name of the child from Isaiah, Emmanuel, and he includes the name which Joseph was commanded to give to the child, Jesus. Again, these names are important. They're not simply things that you would call someone. They tell you something something about him. They give two unique views on what Christ came to do. On the one hand, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the image of the invisible God, as we read in Colossians. When we see and know him, we see and know the Father. And on the other hand, he is Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves, which is itself I know we're getting more into names than you thought you were going to have to do this morning. Joshua itself is a mixture of the name Hosea or Hosea and the prefix of the name of the Lord, whether you pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah. And so Jesus has this this great name that tells us of salvation, not only of salvation, but of the Lord's of Yahweh's salvation. And yet we're told not that his name means the Lord saves, but that he will save his people from their sins. Already in the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, we are seeing when he saves, God saves. When he acts, God acts. This is not just an emissary from the Lord, this is God himself in human flesh. And I think Joseph would have been awed, he would almost have been trembling in his boots, How can this come to my virgin wife in Nazareth? In just a few sentences of scripture, how far has Joseph come from that grief and anger which he was experiencing? He's gone from a grieving resolve to divorce Mary quietly so as not to put her to shame, to a firm commitment to faithfully obey the words that he has heard from God. The angel commanded Joseph two things. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife and call the name of the child Jesus. And that is exactly what he did. We read, when he woke from sleep, he did exactly as the Lord commanded him. We get the feeling of immediate obedience. As Samuel said, here I am, Lord, send me. I will do what you have commanded So on the one hand, Joseph can seem like a bystander in the account of the great miracles, of the great fulfilled prophecies. And we will, next Tuesday, on Christmas Eve, we will talk about Mary's story. We will look at that great traditional version of it in Luke 2 and yet, as we look at Joseph, there's a kind of a different sort of grace that is being offered to him, a different sort of great joy. When I was in college, I had a Friend who came from a slightly less well to do family who sometimes struggled to uh, make ends meet, who struggled to actually kind of pay the next tuition's, uh, the next semester's tuition. There we go. Um, and there was one point at which I said, OK, I worked a little bit over the summer, I can help you out with this. I, it was like 200 bucks or something that he was short for this next semester, and I said, OK, I can do that. We had prayed about it together, and I thought that was what the Lord was leading me to, and so I gave him some money. And a week later, he stood up in front of our kind of Christian group on campus, and he said, you know, I just have this really amazing thing to tell you all. I had this great need. I had this kind of situation where it really looked like I wouldn't be able to be here with you anymore. It looked like I was just going to have to go home and not be able to continue, and yet the Lord provided and then he kept going and kept talking about something else. And at that moment, I was, I was angry because the Lord provided. I provided. I gave you my hard-earned money. <laughs> and yet, it, it is a good thing in those situations to affirm the way that God provided. <laughs> Don't take that as a, as a way to do things. But it taught me something because a week later or so, I was thinking about it and realizing how amazing is it that the God of the universe would use me or would use you to, com- to fulfill his purposes. How amazing is it that such an imperfect vessel, that someone who is as sinful, I think, as we all know that we are, is imperfect. And when we think of the great things that he has done and he is continuing to do, how amazing that he uses us. I think this is what Joseph must have been feeling Not as a bystander, not that he was just this extra tag-on to the story, but how amazing is it that the Lord has sent this message to me that my house, that I even get to be a part of this great story as we are celebrating this time of Christmas. This is part of what we are celebrating How amazing is it that the Lord has not only done these great things, but you and I have been brought into the story, have been saved by his grace and made a part of this great story of redemption that he has been telling since Genesis 1. This new creation, this new genesis that he has brought about, how amazing that that is true of you and of I. Christ came, not haphazardly, but as the fulfilling of prophecies, of covenants, of promises, one of the critical promises that was made, and this is where Joseph really comes in, is that a descendant of David would reign forever. And Jesus, according to the Old Testament, had to be born both of a virgin, according to Isaiah, and in the kingly line of David. How do those two things come together? Were Joseph to have gone through with what he had intended to do, to divorce his betrothed quietly, Christ would not, could not have been the one prophesied. We're at a crisis moment where if Joseph does what he intends to do, the coming of Christ simply does not happen. We know that the Lord works in incredible and mysterious ways that his providence does not negate Joseph's Free will but works with it and that they are compatible and yet we see that if Joseph does this thing that he intends it will not be the Christ child who comes. Two things were necessary for Joseph to be counted as Christ's father. On the one hand he had to marry this woman Mary. For Joseph to be counted as Jesus' father He had to be married to the woman who was his mother. It was one of the rules of adoption and of fatherhood um, in general. And the other thing is he had, in this culture, the father generally would give the name to the child. We see that in the case of Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. What's the first thing that he does when his tongue is loosed? He says, the child shall be named John. And everyone is amazed because that was not a name that was in their family. And so David is brought to this crisis where he is about to divorce his wife, and yet, by this revelation, he is brought not to deny God's purposes, but into perfect walking in step with them. We see that last line, and he called his name Jesus. It's not just a nice story of how Jesus came to be named. That's saying all of these things that had to come true for Jesus to come and be the Messiah to be the Savior of the world, all of those things that we just read about, everything we read about in the Old Testament, all of those things, they came true right here, and his name was Jesus. In this Christmas season, our goal as a church ought to be to remember the wonder and the joy that Joseph felt in that moment, and his name was Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves in this person, in this wonderful child the story of new beginnings, of new genesis, of great reversals, is not only for Joseph and Mary, but for you and I as well. Great tidings of great joy indeed, but not only in some abstract way. If you celebrate this season as a Christian, we celebrate it as great tidings of great joy in one specific person. I want you, as you celebrate in three days, as you open presence as you do whatever you do, as you eat with family, open stockings and hang decorations. And I want you to remember that what we take joy in is not only the wonderful traditions that we have, or if you even are in a place where those days are not as joyous, if you are celebrating it without the family that you want to be around, if you are mourning over someone who will not be there, yet we remember that as we look to Christ, that message, great joy, That message given to Joseph of great peace. That is true for you and it is true for I. It's true for me. Oof, grammar's hard. But as we approach this Christmas, we have to prepare our hearts. This is something that we have done for four weeks. It's one of the reasons that we celebrate Advent, because we don't just turn a page and then say, oh, I am filled with great news of great joy. This is not how the Christian life in general works. If you expect to hit a point where things get hard for you and just to have great joy in that, it will not naturally happen. No, we live in a pattern, in a lifestyle, in a day in and day out, a Sunday in, Sunday out preparation to remember great joy. As we receive the Christ child having come, as we look forward to the second coming of that Christ child. I would pray that we would be preparing our hearts for that daily. For this message given to Joseph is only great joy to us if we receive the one in whom the great joy is found.